Good morning, Redeemer. It's nice to be back from the land of glaciers and fish and chips, the great white north. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, it was, uh, the joke now is I was at a Chinese restaurant and they had fish and chips on the menu because, because up there that's, I think, the only thing they know what to do with it. Uh, so yeah, I'll be giving you guys a church report at the end of service about how things went there at Presbytery. For now, though, we're going to continue in, uh, with the Gospel of Mark. And if you have a Bible, please uh, turn to chapter 1 of Mark. We're going to start in verse 21. Um, there's a large section here, and, and so when I read these, don't, don't be intimidated. I am not going to explain everything in, in these set of verses today. We're, we're going to do it in stages. Today we're going to be dealing with the authority of Christ. Next week we're going to be dealing with this demon who's there in the midst of God's people. What, what is demon possession? Can there still be demon possession? I think it's important to talk about that given the prevalence of the popularity of that idea. I mean, there's a lot of demon possession movies. People are fascinated by it. So I'm, I'm going to break this up into several parts. So this morning, though, what I'm going to do is read the verses that we're going to be talking about, and I want you just to, to, to focus on the concept of Jesus's authority. Okay, he's, he's, he's demonstrating his authority. Beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding reign of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the authority of Jesus Christ, its compassion and its uh, completeness. We pray, Lord, as we now open the word of God, that you would, by by the authority of Christ, uh, he said that you would send your spirit to give us understanding, to, to convict the world of sin to um, heal and give life. We pray, Lord, that as we hear the word this morning, that we would be given new life, that we would be given new understanding, that you would, in fact, convict us of sin and comfort us in our suffering as only you can. We thank you and we look to you to do your work in us now. In the name of Jesus, amen. So going back to last week, the last couple of weeks, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and has has combat combat with Satan. And Mark doesn't explain who won. Well, it seems at this point, right, Jesus leaves there, preaches the gospel, proclaims the gospel, calls uh, his first disciples, goes into a synagogue, begins teaching, heals somebody who has a a high temperature. 
It seems like he didn't lose. It seems like he's now on a mission. It seems like he was victorious. Later we find out that he was, in fact, victorious. But there's still questions here. If he won, right, if he is stronger than Satan, if he's the strong man, you would assume that he would go out and establish his authority the way that most men do. Uh, if, if you've seen the movie Braveheart, uh, what happens in that movie, you know, there's... Eventually, Wallace is defeating all, the, all of his enemies, and, and he's anointed as the knight of the realm. And the first thing that he wants to do is demonstrate his, the actual authority that he has now by invading England and sacking York. They burn it to the ground, chop off the leader's head, and send it in a basket. And, and he's demonstrating that he really does have authority in Scotland. Not just in Scotland, he has enough authority to, to now invade England. Uh, most of you... Uh, know that example. The kids hopefully don't know that example. <laughs> but if kids, if you think of uh, Anakin Skywalker, okay, <laughs> he's, a, he's dubbed now Darth Vader, and what is the first thing that Darth Vader does? He takes an army, and he goes to the temple uh, of the Jedis, and he slaughters anyone who would stand in his way. And, and this is what we're used to, right? The French Revolution and the guillotine. As soon as you take power, what you do is you set up a guillotine, have a bunch of mock trials, and slaughter anyone and everyone who opposes you. That is generally how real authority and power is, is established in this world. It's exactly the thing that Jesus is going to war against. Because, again, what do we see him doing? He goes and calls four men, right? That, that's his army. He raises an army of four. And then he goes to church <laughs> and does some teaching. And then he finds out a friend of his uh, mother has a fever, right? Her, she has a high temperature, and he heals her. And, and somehow this is setting the world ablaze. People are, are astounded at this. People are terrified at his teaching, and then they're astounded, and they go out and they proclaim to the whole region. And then the whole region is reacting to what he is doing. This is a very different kind of king, a very different kind of leader with a very different kind of authority. The introduction to Jesus' Galilean ministry in 121 through 34, which I read for you this morning, exhibits Mark's economy of style by merging several episodes together with only brief connectives and with little or no editorial comment. It doesn't say what he taught. It does, I mean, why is the guy with the demon sitting there in church? How long has he been a member of that church? <laughs> right? We're going to deal with those issues. What, who, is the, um, who is the spirit speaking on the behalf of? He says, you came against us. Well, who's this us? That he's, I mean, there's lots of questions here. And a, as usual, there's no editorial comment. Mark is just telling you what happened. We learn through a variety of encounters who Jesus is by what he does. On a Sabbath day in Capernaum, Mark demonstrates the authority of Jesus through preaching. With a man, uh, when a man with an unclean spirit meets the one anointed with God's spirit, and through the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Right? That doesn't seem like Jesus is working too hard to astound the world, but he is. How? Why? Just like the four disciples, they just get up and follow him. Why are people reacting this way to what he is doing and what he is saying? Now, I, I have actually preached on these verses before. It's, I'm learning a ton about preaching here. So back in, in January, I did a sermon on the Sabbath, and I used this section, actually, as a, as a demonstration of how Jesus spent his Sabbath day. I thought I would reuse that sermon, but it turns out once you're 
explaining the book of Mark from Mark's point of view that uh, it's not a topical sermon, and actually that sermon didn't fit at all with, with everything else that we, we've been talking about. So if you want to know more about this, there's lots of ways to apply different verses in the Bible. Um, as you're going to see, I'm going to do several sermons in the same section. I've already done a sermon in this section, and it was totally different than what I'm going to say today. So there was a sermon called Work and Rest, which is very good, uh, about how you ought to spend your Sabbath day. Because what is Jesus doing? All Sabbath, he's either at church or he's festively, he has some festive fellowship with his friends. That's very instructive. But today we're concerned with his authority. Mark concentrates upon a single Sabbath day when Jesus' authority provoked the astonishment of the congregation. Mark has no immediate interest in the precise content of Jesus' exposition. There's no outline. There's no even brief summary of it. Its general thrust is sufficiently indicated, I believe, by chapter 1, verse 15, where it says that Jesus goes around proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. That's most likely what what he's preaching on here. We're going to do a sermon in a few weeks on the content of Jesus' preaching. But for now, it's interesting to note that Mark doesn't tell us what it is. Jesus' word, presented with a sovereign authority, permits neither debate nor theoretical reflection. I, I, don't, I, mean, I'm, I assume most of us have never been to a synagogue. Uh, the synagogue hasn't changed a ton. But generally what there is is somebody reads from the law, then there's some expounding on it, and then generally afterwards the fellowship, right, because the men and women are separate in a conservative synagogue, is the men kind of speculating about all the different things it could mean. That's what these Jews were, had been used to. And then here comes Jesus. He's not asking questions. He's not theorizing. He, it's not, there's no skepticism. He just declares. He, he speaks with authority. Jesus' teaching recalled the categorical demand demand of the prophets rather than the scribal tradition, which is mostly speculation. The narrative is abbreviated so that the reader receives only a single impression, that Jesus taught with authority. That is Mark's point. doesn't matter what he said. It's who said it is, is, is the point that Mark is making. The authority in view is not merely the power to decide, but to compel decision in other people. Right? He's not speculating so that he can make up his own mind. He is declaring things that other people have to make a decisive decision about. The authority with which Jesus spoke presupposes a commission and authorization from God, inseparable from the proclamation of the king, uh, inseparable from his proclamation that the kingdom of God had drawn near. Now, see, this is one of the things that Mark is doing. He knows that you already know some things about Jesus that his, the audience in, the, in Capernaum doesn't know. You know that the heavens opened at his baptism. You know what God the Father said. You know that he went out and had a decisive battle with Satan. You know how people are already responding to him. You know all those things. And so you're coming here, you're coming to this, this story with that knowledge already. So when everybody else is full of, is just mystified by what's happening, you're beginning to understand a little bit about who this person actually is and what he's trying to accomplish. Now, it was a common practice for visiting teachers to be invited to read the scripture and or speak. We see this custom in Paul's life. Jesus also did it. That Jesus was invited to speak indicates that he had already established a reputation as a teacher. Otherwise, no one would have invited him to speak. There's a great deal of his life that we don't know anything about. But clearly, he was already somebody who, who had some authority. Otherwise, nobody would have invited him to do the reading and proclaim the word of God. So, that's interesting as well. He already has a reputation as a rabbi. But where did that authority come from? 
right? They're, they're basing his permission to do it on, on this worldly authority that, that the, you know, the, the other rabbis have given him. But we know he has a, a bigger authority that came from much higher up. In the presence of Jesus, men are disturbed. And this disturbance is the precise act of fishing to which Jesus had called the four fishermen. Right? He casts his net, and as we see, at least one man standing stands up in the middle of it and has this interaction. So you imagine the, the demon-possessed man, and there's Jesus with his fishing pole, and they're tugging back and forth. And Jesus, in, in the end, hauls the guy in the boat. It was a common practice. Oh, I already said that. Okay, according to custom, Jesus enters the synagogue on the Sabbath and begins to teach. Unlike the temple in Jerusalem where animal sacrifice was practiced by priests, Jewish synagogues, according to uh, their tradition, were assembly halls, right? Not everybody can make it up to the temple all the time. So what they have is any time there are 10 Jewish men, 13 years or older, they call it a quorum, and you can now establish, that's all it took to establish a synagogue. 10 men over the age of 13, and bam, you have a synagogue. Now, what they had is somebody who was in charge of the synagogue, somebody who swept up at the end, made sure the scrolls were never destroyed, they were well taken care of, generally taught some sort of Sunday school, but they weren't qualified to proclaim the word, to expound upon it. So that is why they have these traveling um, rabbis who go around, itinerant preachers, essentially, who who make their living traveling around. And, And this whole system was developed because of the exile. Right? You had to have something else in Babylon because you can't get to the temple. And so you see God working through the large sort of themes of history because now you have all these synagogues all over the place that Jesus can travel around to, that Paul can travel around to. And it's, a, it's amazing how often Paul is, gets invited into the enemy's camp because he's this traveling rabbi. Right? How often does that happen in Acts? Paul goes to a new city. They invite him in to teach. He, 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 you know, he explains things in a completely new and fresh way that nobody's expecting, and it creates all this turmoil. Well, you see that Paul's pattern is based on Jesus' pattern. He's invited in to the enemy's camp. He expounds on these things with a new understanding, and, and, and immediately you see all this stirring. The waters now are all choppy everywhere that Jesus goes because of the things that he is saying and doing. The combination of teaching and miracle in this one account shows that Jesus was powerful in both word and deed. Right? He doesn't just speak. He speaks and he acts. It's, it's not enough that a church has a ministry of the word. It needs a ministry of words and deeds. I've covered this thoroughly enough already, but you can see why. He doesn't just proclaim. He, he acts. And, and the two together are, demonstrate who he is and how much authority he has. Jesus' teaching was much more than a collection of novel or encouraging ideas. It was an exercise of authority. The powers of darkness perceived in his teaching a a challenge to their own kingdom. The authority of Jesus was displayed as those powers were first silenced and then banished. What distinguishes Jesus' teaching is this combination of word and deed, something which becomes an increasingly important theme for Mark. Mark's statement that Jesus taught as one who had authority not as the scribes, isn't just a knock on the scribes. Right? It seems like he's just making this offhanded comment about how scribes are punks. Uh, well, there's Jesus, and then there's these fools over here. There is something to that, but it's more important than just a knock on them. He's not just putting them down. This word, authority, 
is something that we have to, to break down and look at very closely. It's exousia is the word in Greek. It occurs nine times, six times in reference to Jesus himself, three times in reference to the authority that he gives to his disciples. Every instance of this word exousia, therefore, reflects their di- either directly or indirectly the authority of Jesus. When the word is used, it's referring to either his authority or the authority that he gives other people. Now, the etymology of this word is interesting. The prefix ex means out of. Ousia was a Greek philosophical term meaning the ultimate reality. The things that philosophers were seeking, the fundamental, transcendent, supreme, ultimate being or substance. So when he's speaking exousia, he's speaking out of this ultimate authority and substance. He's not just giving them a feel-good message. Right? They're, they're literally saying, not only is it authoritative because it, it, it's, he's speaking as if he's speaking from the supreme authority over everything, but it's also weighty. There's substance to what he's teaching. So Jesus is speaking exousia, out of substance. Jesus' teaching was supremely substantive. There was nothing superficial, speculative, or light about it. This was the utterance of the beloved Son of the Father. Jesus' authority was rooted in God himself. This is, what, this is why they're using this mysterious word and they're all mystified. They're even, to a sense, the word terrified by what he's saying. It's as if God himself is there speaking. Who is this man? There's a number of times where this is demonstrated in Jesus' life. At, at the end of his um, ministry, just before he's arrested, he co- when he's in the garden in, in the book of John, all of the, the soldiers come to get him. And they say, where is this Jesus of Nazareth? And he says this phrase, I am. And, and then it says in John, everybody falls down. Well, why? Why? Right? A man says, I am, and everybody's falling down. Well, it's because the word that he used is the word of the name of God, the, the I am that Moses learned about. And, and, and I love these moments because suddenly you realize by the pronouncement of a word, the word of God pronounces the name of God and, it, and everyone falls down. This is a power that he had. By the Holy Spirit, he was speaking, and, he, and, and everyone recognized that what he had to say was of, of extreme importance and was extraordinarily weighty. Now, who are the scribes that they're knocking in this, in this verse? Well, scribes are first mentioned in, in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So why, by this point, are they putting down scribes when scribes are essentially the PhDs in the word of God? They're the ones with the PhDs you know, from, from Westminster Theological Seminary. And here they are being put down and compared to this authority that Jesus has. Well, like all things, you know, Anything that starts out well generally doesn't end well. <laughs> and over time, everything needs to be reformed. So by the time Jesus comes along, it's clear from his interaction with them, as he says of them, they're, they're men with fancy clothes. In, in, in the culture, if, if you see a scribe coming down the street, if you're a Jew, you get out of the way. 
They get the best seats in the synagogues. They have, they're the ones who stand in public with their long prayers. And, and they have all this show of piety, all this worldly respect. And they're the ones who, who are completely threatened by everything that Jesus does. And they are the ones that are, are behind his murder. Because they realize something, a greater authority is here. Something that they can't control. Something they can't use to either get richer or more powerful under the Romans. And they hate him for it. And so the comparison here is that the scribes, though they were outwardly respected, they weren't really inwardly respected. People didn't have a lot of respect for them. They just feared them, like any other worldly authority. And Jesus isn't like that. He's not here, right? What, what do we see? He comes into the synagogue. He goes into his friend's house. And is, is he there to make money? Is he there so that everybody bows down? Is he there to get the best seats? Is he there just to get respect? Is he making an outward show of his piety, or is he really pious? Now, we don't know what he says in this, in this section, but I want to I read something from Matthew just to give us an idea of the way he spoke. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read for uh, a couple of verses here. I'm going to start in verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. This is what it, Jesus says in, in the, his famous Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So far, he sounds just like a scribe. He's going to give you a verse from the Old Testament, and then what he's going to do is he's going to go on and speculate about all the different things that, that are said about it. Because in the Jewish tradition, you've got like five different famous rabbis who would have commented on this, and then you start, right, you read them all, or you memorize them all. This is how scribes worked. And then you compare them and try to figure out who's right. So right out of the gate, verse 27, he sounds just like any other teacher. But then he says something fascinating. But I say to you, and any Jew who had been a Jew for any amount of time would have been startled by this turn of phrase. He's not quoting anybody. He's not speculating. He's saying it because he's saying it, and it's the word. This is what I'm telling you is truth. You've heard this said or that. It doesn't matter. I'm here now, and this is what I'm saying. And what's fascinating about this is what, why would people respond to it? Because I, I go through this all the time. There, there is a huge difference between a, a, um, a sermon and preaching, <laughs> I get all this glorious time now to read, to study, to pray, all this time to think, to sit down and work out little fancy you know, turns of phrase and everything that sounds amazing. But, but good sermons or bad sermons don't make good or bad preaching. I stand up here and I declare things that I have studied, things that are the, the words of God, and, and somehow, in some way, the Spirit is working through the, the, the stuff I'm saying in your hearts to stir you to belief. Now, not everybody experiences this kind of thing on a regular basis, but what we're going to see is that we all can. <laughs> this is exactly what God wants. You declare his word, and he, by his Spirit, will do, do the work in the hearts. This is what's happening with Jesus. He's not, he's not holding back. He's declaring the word of God. And God is, is, is by the declaring of his word going out and separating right from the nets this fish and that fish. You got one guy standing up in the middle of the synagogue 
reacting to what Jesus is saying, and this is always what's happened. How did, right, every one of you, for the most part, even little kids, at some point you were sitting there or in another church, and you heard the word of God declared, and there was a, like, and, and the words weren't just words. There was authority in them. There was a reaction to what was being said. We all became Christians by hearing the word preached. And, and what, what it is, is it's, it's terrifying. You're like, this guy doesn't sound like Trump. <laughs> this word doesn't sound like speculation. This doesn't sound like my Bellevue Community College philosophy classes. And, and, and there was some man standing up in front of the church declaring words, just pronouncing words, and God was working through them to, do, to drive out demons, to drive out sin, to fish, to gather in those who were his children. Because when, we, when I get up and I declare, I, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. I declare the word of God. It still works exactly the way that Jesus did it. He's not speculating. He is the word of God. And when you hear the word of God, there's actual power in it. There is a visceral response to it. And that is a glorious ministry. That is the ministry. Right? It's word and deed. There's a, a preeminence to the ministry of the word. I could go on, but I'm not going to go on anymore with Matthew. He stands up, and he isn't speculating. He says, this is what's what. The scribes are said to have teaching, but no authority. They can teach, but there's no authority in it. The combat that Jesus engages in it isn't just with the demonic forces of evil, but with the self-righteous religious leaders who are getting fat and powerful at the expense of God's people. So you can see that he is on the warpath. He is challenging the, the power behind the power, this demon. He's a challenging, and he's challenging the power you can see. He's challenging the, the religious leaders of his day. Truly, true godly authority isn't dressed in long robes. True godly authority isn't seeking the best seats public honor, or, the pr or praise with long-winded prayers and shows of piety. True godly authority speaks boldly to free slaves from the bondage of sin and death. It draws near to the sick and to the suffering. It proclaims truth. It drives the dark forces of Satan out of the congregation of God's house. Do you want darkness to flee? Proclaim the word of God. Right? The authority that he has is the authority over the heavens and the earth. The impression of Jesus' authority goes deep, but it also spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Jesus' defeat of the strong man is not at the expense of Satan's victims, but on their behalf. Not only are unclean spirits expelled, but broken people are restored to health and wholeness. How long do you think that guy was possessed by a demon? What kind of life do you think he had? And so he comes and he destroys the demon and restores the one that the demon held in bondage. This is a very different kind of... He's concerned about others. He's concerned about what the powers of darkness are doing to real people. It's not just some general kingdom of darkness theoretically. This man's life was completely altered at the word of God at this confrontation between light and darkness. 
The exousia of Jesus is astonishing, not as a display of Jesus' grandeur, but as a power of redemption for captives. He's not out slaughtering Romans. He's freeing some poor man who is possessed by a demon. This is his big show of authority. The Son of God has arrived. Watch me change this one man's life. This is the supreme authority, and it is humble, it is personal, and it is complete. It is humble, it is personal, and it is complete. And it isn't uh, just authority only over demons and scribes, but the fallen nature that causes our suffering, as we see in the next set of events, because what does he do? Everyone's astonished at his authority. And he goes on, and we think this is a separate story, but it's not a separate story. The four men that he called... It says they went into the synagogue. Now it's plural, right? If you go back to verse um, Mark chapter 1, verse 21, they went into Capernaum. Now immediately after this, because the house must be nearby, it's the same four men that he called going into their, own, their personal home. So he's, hang, he's making now Peter's house his headquarters. And what do we find when he goes there? We see the same authority, but instead of this public declaration of it, we see it in a very personal relation. I mean, what is going on with his mother-in-law? She's running a temperature. That seems a little bit below the king of heaven and earth, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Your mom's a little sick, and, and you know the king of the heavens and earth, and it's, I'm not really going to bother him with that because it seems like it's too, you know, it's too small, and he's got a lot of things to do. I mean, he just is ca- he's casting out demons. That seems a little bit more important. And what I find fascinating is, is, is he must know. Jesus knows. But it, it says specifically that Peter tells him. Peter brings it to his attention. If you look at verse 30, immediately they told him about her. So what's fascinating about this is I thought Peter had to leave his family. I thought he had to abandon all earthly cares, all earthly possessions, all earthly relationships, and come and follow. But it's not as if Jesus called him out. It's as if Jesus entered in. He wants devotion, complete and utter devotion from Peter. But he has come into Peter's household now. He's not just concerned with Peter. He's concerned with everyone who Peter is concerned with. And, and there's nothing too small for him to be concerned with, right? Okay, so afterwards it says then she begins to prepare the meal. Well, if that was the problem and Jesus just needed somebody to make them food, he could have just made the food himself, right? Oh, we don't, where's the person who's serving the food? They're not here? Okay, well, I'll just make some food because I can. That's not what he does. He, somebody has a fever? Well, that's terrible, and there's no incantations. There's no prayer. He, he goes by the power of his word. He takes her. His healing hand touches her. He says, rise up, and she rises up. And then immediately, she begins to serve. Well, I, you know, usually when I'm feeling better, there's kind of stages to it. I'm sick, and then I'm kind of not as sick, and then I'm better, but I'm not really better. You know what I'm saying? There's usually phases to illness. This is immediate and, uh, and complete and total, and it's simply because of his touch and his word. That's real authority. That's real authority. It's also interesting, we learn from Deuteronomy 28, that fevers are sometimes the, something that God does as a curse. 
And it was believed that certain fevers can only be driven out by God himself. Now, I'm only speculating here because Mark, again, doesn't really tell us much. But is it that Jesus is demonstrating that he is curing something that only God could cure? And then she rises up and serves them. And that word, serve, is the same word that it was used when the angels were ministering to Jesus. It's the same word that Jesus says when he says, the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve. He's done more for this woman than simply cure a fever. He's transformed her into someone like himself. She's doing the kind of work he's doing now. I I think it's an interesting play on words. There's a lot of words that they could have used for her just to be somebody serving tables. But he's made her, she's gone from illness to life, complete and full restored life, to, to service like he serves. The four disciples are the inroad into their own communities and families. Jesus accompanies them into their home, Again, they haven't come out to him. He has gone into their midst because he is the Emmanuel. In this incident, incident, Jesus solved a problem that might have remained unsolved if he had not appeared on the scene. If Peter had stayed with his nets, he could not have solved it himself. As the story unfolds, Simon's mother-in-law was the first of many people about whom he presumably cared and whom Jesus healed personally. He cared personally about her. The reference to Peter's mother-in-law serves to clarify what it meant for Peter to be confronted by Jesus' summons to follow him. He had a family. He had a home. He had, uh, he had to provide for them. He had responsibilities. The call to be a fisher of men demanded total commitment to Jesus. But the healing accomplished within Peter's home indicates that salvation had come to his house in response to the radical obedience that he had manifested. God hears the prayers of a righteous man. Right? In, in, in the modern culture that we have, it's all about personal salvation, Christian culture. Dare I say, Baptistic culture. It's all about me and my life, me and my salvation. And, and the, the, this is where the concept of covenant theology gets all mixed up in people's minds. We're not, we don't really understand. He, he's not just after a fish. He's casting a net. Now, this is going to be kind of a weird metaphor, but when you cast a net and a bunch of fish are in the pool, in this water together, they're generally related. <laughs> he doesn't cast a net and get a fish from Chile and a fish from Puerto Rico. He casts a net and he brings in all these fish. He doesn't want one. He wants a bunch. He saves a man because he wants him to marry a woman and have kids and have them be believers. Right? Your, your net is big. He wants, you are the point in which he is entering in not just your life, but the life of the people around you. This is why all of his promises are, 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 are familial, communal, tribal promises. He doesn't just want individuals. He wants families. He wants communities. We live like he just wants us, <laughs> right? He saved me. I live in Bothell. I'm the one he's clearly concerned about on my block because he saved me, right? I don't know about these other people. I'm not sure if they have fevers or, or if they're possessed by demons or whatever. I don't care. I'm saved. And this is how we think about our lives. This is how we're tempted to think about it. This is how we do think about it. And we think it's very pious and religious to think this way. But his authority, he's not demonstrating his authority for his own sake. He's demonstrating it not just even for the people who have committed themselves to him. He's doing it on behalf of people who are simply related to the people who have committed themselves to him. 
This scene confirms that the mercy and compassion of God extended to Peter's mother-in-law by Jesus. It indicates that the figures in the background of the gospel narratives are affected by the power of this mysterious Galilean. He wants you to cast nets, big, giant nets, to catch as many fish as you can. Well, that seems like a ridiculously big job. I don't have that kind of authority. Oh, wait, what? You don't have that kind of authority? You don't have that kind of authority. Well, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The authority that we see is the authority by which you are going into the world to do the work of the Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth are his. Therefore, go and cast nets. Declare the word of God. Bring people before him in prayer, saying, heal this man, heal this woman. How often are you praying for your neighbors? How often are you praying for the Supreme Court? We're all very concerned right now about what Kavanaugh might or might not have done, who's accusing him or not accusing him, but have you prayed for the senators who are on that commission? Are you declaring the word of God? You know, In the word of God, there's a lot to be said about this, but God's word has all authority on heaven and earth, and you cannot bring someone before publicly accusing them unless you have more than two witnesses. Now, they may or may not have actually done what one person is accusing them, but if you can't establish it in a court of law without two or more, that's the word of God. Now, are we angry and upset and worked up and, and, and intimidated and declaring, and this is the thing that we're talking about? Or are we just, are we getting wrapped up in the GOP and the Trumpness of the whole thing? Everyone's very distracted right now by this whole nonsense, but where are the people standing up and saying, this is injustice? The seriousness of the charge doesn't make it true. This goes back to the sermon on the prophetic voice. We serve the living God. All authority is his. I don't care how many different categories of man and woman you want to say that there are. There are two. There is a man and there is a woman. Marriage is something that has a man and a woman, and the purpose is to have offspring that glorify God. That's the word of God. That is what we need to be proclaiming. Oh, okay. Um, that just sounds very aggressive. All right. Well, not everyone necessarily is called to that kind of ministry. You should always speak with the authority of the word of God. But then you have Peter here who just quietly goes to Jesus in a a moment of confidence and says, hey, you know, my, my mom is sick. My mom is sick. My neighbor is sick. My coworker is is living in unbelief. I believe that my brother-in-law is possessed by a demon. (laughs) No, I didn't mean that for me personally. The people in your life, God is not simply concerned with you. He's concerned with them. Are you? Are you concerned with them? Stand up and proclaim the word of God. And go to him like you can, because all authority, he's with you to the end of the age. His authority is your authority. The gospel is what we're proclaiming, and the gospel is the power by which we do it. 
The reconciliation that's been ministered to you through God is the ministry of reconciliation now, which is your mission in the world. And, and you don't have to be the God of the whole planet. How, how can I possibly help and serve and fix all of these problems? Over It's not your responsibility to fix it all. He saved you because he wants your family. He put you in a neighborhood because he wants your neighborhood. He, ha- he has this church in this city because he wants this city. Forget about the Supreme Court for now. Do any of you know the names of the police officer who has the power of life and death over the people who live in your neighborhood? There is a person who has a gun, who has a badge, and has the authority to shoot or not shoot. Do you know who they are? We are distracted by the power struggles of this world. There's only one power struggle that we should be concerned with. And it's personal, it's compassionate and merciful, and it's right here in our midst. God is concerned about your wife, your husband, your kids. He's concerned about the people who live on your street, the people who work in your building, the people who live around this church. We're not just like a safe house here, right? Something bad happens in a movie, and it's always nice you have a safe house to go to, and you can, right? Because superheroes need to eat too, I suppose, and get, catch some shut-eye. But church isn't a safe house, It's a jumping-off point. It's the command center in the middle of ground that God is attempting to conquer through us. So don't buy into the power struggles of this world. Don't. The word of God is the word of God. Declare it. Right? There will be conflict. Don't get me wrong. The demon-possessed man is right there in their midst. But the word of God is true. And let everyone else be a liar. Stand on that. God hears your prayers because you are his children. Stand on that. He is, he is imminently concerned with anything as small as a fever. Stand on that. Right? This is the God that loves you. This is the God who says in Christ, you are my beloved children. I am, I am concerned about you and the people around you. I have given my words to define your understanding of this world and the things in it. Believe it. I have given you full access by the Spirit into my throne room from which I am the all authority on heaven and earth is mine here. Bring your problems to me and I am the king of everything. I will hear you and I will act. This is the God that we serve. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the authority of your Son. We thank you for giving us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray, Lord, that you would... By your spirit, give us greater faith, greater belief, greater confidence in the power of your word. The power of your word as it's read, the power of your word as it's sung, the power of your word as it is spoken in truth, in love. Father, give us confidence and faith and belief in the power of prayer. Let us not be merely concerned with our own lives and our own salvation, but with the lives of everyone around us. It is a big world, and we have a small part in us, in it. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would be far more concerned with the things of God in this small corner of the world that you have given us. We thank you for your authority, for it saved us. We thank you for your authority because nothing can stand in our way from coming to you. We pray, Lord, that as we go from here, that we would go in the power and authority of our beloved and merciful and compassionate Jesus Christ. Amen.